This is the Brewed Up Apologetics podcast where we aim to look at and think about the world biblically through the lens of craft brewing. So grab your favorite sipper, whether that be a beer, coffee, kombucha, or soda, with me, Tyler Henry, as we begin to allow Jesus to redeem our culture and the world around us through sound biblical thinking and apologetics. Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute blast doing this with you and for you and growing together while enjoying one of the, one of the, I, I think one of the best uh, culinary inventions. And even though I'm a, I love food, I'm a big barbecue fan, I love cooking on the grill, and what goes better with cooking on the grill than a beer? So... Welcome to the Brewed Up Apologetics podcast. It's been wonderful, like I said, to be able to do this with you. And, you know, before we get into our our uh, our discussion today on the resurrection, I want to give you a little bit of some updates on where I'm at in life and what's been going on in my personal life and you know, it's I actually just celebrated a year of marriage with my my wife. It's been she's or she has been, I should say, an absolute blessing and just being such an encouragement and pushing me to do the things that that God has called me to do and and also you know, being being a, a willing to learn and and try new things as well you know she didn't know anything about apologetics before meeting me and if she did she didn't know what it was but even even in terms of the like the craft beer stuff she she would only venture into like the coronas and other domestics like that and or even imports i mean she was a big fan of imports but once we started dating it was it was great because then that was something that we could go and we could just talk and have have a drink, talk, get to know each other and you know it it just allows the conversation to flow so well. And so yeah, we celebrated we celebrated a year of marriage on October 26th. It's been an absolute blast and she keeps me on my toes. But Another thing that just happened this past week and past weekend is I graduated from Talbot School of Theology, which is located in Biola University. It's one of the auxiliary schools that they have, and I graduated with my master's in apologetics, and I am so excited to be able to uh, honestly not have to do any schoolwork, and I can read what I would like, when I would like it, how fast I would like to do it. But at the same time, I'm going to miss that regimented schedule, those, the discussions, and and the professors. Now, I I can't say enough about that school, about the program. It is absolutely amazing, and you know, I w- I wrote in a in a 
a Facebook post today on my my personal Facebook page, and I mentioned that that a thank you isn't doesn't it doesn't carry enough weight, and I I really do mean that. Thank you, a thank you is 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 something that I I don't know it just it just has this like temporal feel to it where it's only like a thank you right now, but I might not thank you later type feeling to it, and that's not where what or how where I'm at right now. I would not be where I'm at today without this school and this program. Going through a divorce in 2017 in the middle of seminary was horrible. I mean, it was I mean, the the excruciating emotional and 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 spiritual and sometimes even physical pain because the emotional and spiritual pain hurt so bad that it would become physical. Not having my my fellow students and, and colleagues and professors and just the program keeping me grounded in the faith and, and, and rooted in the Bible, I don't know without that I don't know where I would be. So you know this that this program it wasn't it wasn't just an intellectual pursuit for me this program has has a deep personal connection with me and and my personal journey into not just the apologetics but into the apologetics uh side of theology but also just my christian walk this has been something that has been troubling me for the past couple past couple months i mean only because of just th- that that one year mark it's a monumental mark in a marriage and you know this the 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 everything that goes along with biola and apologetics and and the community that that is there i i can't say enough about them if you're looking to to study apologetics or philosophy or anything, please look them up. They're honestly their prices are reasonable, and um, you know I went through an entire accredited master's program that's thirty six or thirty nine credits now, thirty nine credit program, and you get an accredited master's degree in apologetics, and then there's a sister program if you would like you can also enroll in that and that's the science uh masters in science and religion same thing 39 credit and it's it's a wonderful program i have friends that are in it currently so again don't hesitate to look them up if you're interested in in studying apologetics or even if you're not sure whether or not you want to whether you, whether or not you want to pursue a master's degree they have a a phenomenal certificate program i went through that as well during the masters and yeah i i can't i can't say enough about that so it's a really good intro introduction you read some really great resources and if you would like and you're trying your hand out at the whole masters thing they also have a a paper type or a paper track that you can work with work on while doing the the certificate program that if you do the paper and 
you enter into the into the actual master's program, those credits will transfer and you don't have to do those classes again. And they count towards your elective credits. So what's in my cup today? In my cup is my absolute favorite beer of all time. And I'm so excited to share this with you because it's my favorite. And I don't know why it has taken me this long to do it. But this brewery is one of, I think, one of the best, if not the best brewery out there. It is Dogfish Head Brewing from Milton, Delaware. And Sam Calcioni, he is a a beer innovator. And he actually came up, if you're familiar with the torpedo system from Sierra Nevada, or he actually came up with the concept of this. And it's called the Continually Hopped. And right now, I am sipping on the 60-minute IPA, which is a Continually Hopped for 60 Minutes IPA. It's a very well-balanced IPA that is good all year round. And again, I feel like I'm talking really fast, and that's not that's not the uh, that's not the beer talking. I can promise you that. I'm just really excited to show or share this with you and share my 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 appreciation for this this beer and this company um but just a little bit about the whole continual hop process uh you know i i actually learned this on the tour and one of the things one of the things that they that they teach you or that they they show you is the the actual like beginnings and beginning beginning equipment that Sam used and the continually hopped process because Sam wanted to create a very well-rounded IPA that was bitter as well as floral and 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 just all all around tasty utilizing the hops and highlighting the hops with a good malt back backbone and then having the hops jump off of that backbone so with a continually hopped part of it from the from the time that the boil starts to the time that the boil ends which is a 60 minute boil they are continually hopping so they're adding hops throughout the entire thing which is a really innovative idea nobody has ever done it up, up until Sam started and then the torpedo they got they worked on and they're very good friends with the the, the guys over at Sierra Nevada and they they do things with the torpedo and that that whole system there is is something that is just has taken off in the beer community um, but other than that I I can't say enough about this brewery their, their food oh my gosh easily has one their their brewings and eats in in Rehoboth Beach which is the original the the site of the original brewery is or has the best pizza or my favorite pizza of all time which is a uh it's called the old man in the sea which is an ode to the uh to the short story sam is a he's a, he's got an uh a, a masters in english and you know he's got a very very refined palate for the english language so he likes to to utilize that in his in his uh stuff so you know if if you have the chance go down check it out it's worth it 
and you're going to get some good beer and some good food and some really interesting people. So, you know, with with that being said, let's jump into, I'm sorry if you hear the shuffling of my papers, um, you might hear that a couple times, but let's jump into the resurrection. And, um, you know, before we, before we go and actually tackle some of the, some of, some of the actual, um, facts and stuff surrounding the resurrection, you know, I, I want to give a good scope and sequence of where we're going and be able, and be able to give you a, a, a bird's eye view of, of the whole thing. So, bird's eye view of the resurrection of Jesus. You know, that's where we're starting. So, one of the things that we need to remember is that we should never read a Bible verse. And this comes from, from Greg Kokel. He's a great, great apologist. Good stuff. Go check him out. But the never read a Bible verse. That, when I first heard that, I was really, really concerned. Because I was like, no, like that goes against everything that I have been taught growing up in the church. You know, I'm supposed to be able to read a Bible verse and, and, and understand it. But as as you get a little bit more biblically literate and you start to read the Bible more, you're going to find out that that's not the case. You can't just pick a Bible verse out of the middle of nowhere and expect it to apply to your life. There's a whole process called hermeneutics that we need to that we need to to use so that we can extract what what God is saying and what the what the truth claim that he is conveying and how that applies to our lives. And then we so what does it mean? What does the text mean? And then how do we apply that meaning to our life? And how we get to the meaning is it's it's all context. So that's not just what's going on in the surrounding verses and the the paragraphs in the book, but also what's going on grammatically. Because, you know, think about what the English language is like. The English language has multiple meanings. I can use the word love, for instance. Love does not have just one meaning. Love has a multitude of meanings, and we I can say to to my wife, I can say, Taylor, I love you. And I love you with everything that I have. I would, I, w- I, uh, I could say that to her, and she knows exactly what I mean. It's this type of agape love where I, w- I would lay my life down for her, but I also have this brotherly love for her in terms of as a, as a brother in Christ, but then I also have a romantic love for her. I find her attractive. And but then I can say to to my best friend Aaron, I can be like, "Bro, I love you. I'll talk to you later. See you in a couple days." And that love is a totally different type of love. It is a brotherly love, but at the same time it's this type, sort of agape agape love because I would also not hesitate to lay my life down for this man. He has been instrumental 
in 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 my life and keeping me keeping me grounded so we need to look at all of that so what's going on grammatically not just with with word meanings but with tenses and 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 gendering of of words but also what's going on in the culture what's going on surrounding surrounding the the what's being said so if we if let's let's look at let's look at uh the book of matthew for instance because we're gonna go there and in like matthew is writing largely to a he's writing largely to a jewish audience so he's going to use a lot of very semitic language and again there's that there's that grammatical piece to it with a word meaning but also he's taking jewish things and then using them to to bolster and, and to boost up the gospel so we need to take that type of stuff and also you know like what like what about like the corinthian church you know i have i have um tattoos very proud of my tattoos and i love them i plan on getting more i'm working on a full sleeve right now but um we we hear all the time in in or at least i heard all the time growing up that one of the big one of the big reasons for not getting a tattoo is found in Exodus and found in 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 1 Corinthians where it says that the temple is the body is the temple of the holy spirit and also that we shouldn't get tattoos that we shouldn't make markings on our body for the dead so one if we look at Corinthians that's not how that stuff works that's obviously the surrounding context of what's being written is about sexual purity but then if we look at what the exodus passage is saying that's also talking about how to how to make yourself look different and appear different than and act different than the the canaanites surrounding the the israelites at the time so but then if jumping back to to the first Corinthians thing, I'm sorry if I'm flip-flopping back and forth. Um, that's the, the ADD mind for you. But the surrounding surrounding what's or what's going on in the city of Corinth and in, in the church of Corinth is that they are they're being very legalistic about about these things. And um ob- obviously because they were talking about this, they were being legalistic, but then at the same time, they were being really lax. And this laxity in, in terms of, of sexual purity, it, it, it can't be related to tattoos. Yeah, there might be some, some, some Canaanite or some pagan practices that go along with, with, with sex and, and tattoos, but they're not mutually exclusive, or they're not mutual. They they can be completely exclusive. I can be pure sexually and have tattoos. It's totally possible. So that's the type of stuff that we're th- we're talking about when we think of context. Now there's some there's some questions there's some questions that we need to ask before we before we go into any of the any of the 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 primary sources. And before we before we get a consensus of what the primary sources are saying, so 
what, what one of the one of the questions that we need to ask is what do the primary sources say? So we do a, a complete survey of the biblical text, specifically the Gospels and any early accounts of the God of 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 the resurrection and what what's going on. And this is not going to be a a small study. This is a very large study. And then what what does what does Paul say? What what does Paul say outside of these primary sources about the resurrection? And then what does biology tell us? You know, we have this thing this discipline called biology and human biology and human anatomy and physiology what do they say about the resurrection or the crucifixion account because that's going to take take some sort of an effect and i'm sorry that was my phone um it was a it was a post on facebook and i got a notification very sorry about that um so what what does biology tell us and then what does history tell us and it's another another good one so what what do other Christian sources tell us that are not canonical. What do non-Christian sources tell us? And if there's a consensus there, then maybe we should take the consensus word. Maybe we should adopt that consensus view. And then, you know, what... At the very end, you know, we're also going to be kind of looking at some of the other naturalistic um, naturalistic theories and, and thinking behind the resurrection. Um, well, we're going to be doing that throughout as best as possible. But then at the very end, we're going to take this whole cumulative or take the, all of the things that we've talked about and then make one big cumulative case for it. And we're going to use that, and I'm going to kind of borrow... From Dr. Gary Habermas, who who has championed this this thing called the 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 minimal facts argument, and after we go through all of them, or after we go through all of these all of these these facts um, that are not part of the minimal facts argument, then we can boil them down into between six and twelve minimal facts that. The consensus of scholars, both skeptical and Christian scholar and and Christian scholars believe. So that's where we're going. So let's let's get into what the primary sources are are, are talking about. This is the meat and potatoes of the resurrection accounts. So let me get a sip real quick. My mouth is really dry, and then we'll get into the primary sources and what they say about the resurrection. Okay, so, and I'm sorry if I have to pull away from the mic. Things about working with, or talking with, uh, with a carbonated, carbonated beverage. Sometimes you you gotta burp. But the consensus of all of the primary sources is that Jesus was betrayed. He was arrested. He was tried. He was scourged, he was mocked, he was crucified, he died, was buried, 
and he rose again in three days. And then, after the resurrection, he was around on this earth for another 40 days. You'll also hear sometimes seven weeks. That seven weeks is roughly 40 days. So, he rose bodily. It wasn't a spirit body like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. It was a physical resurrection, and we're going to get to that whenever we start talking about um, Paul. And we we know that it's physical because of, of the certain things that he did. And certain certain things like eating, being able to touch, touch the body of, of Jesus and examine the holes in his wrists and in, in his side, walking with them, cooking, cooking the disciples breakfast. So all of these things are something that, that a, a spiritual body can't do. Now, whenever we, um, Whenever we think about like the Jehovah's Witnesses, we also need to remember that they start off with a Gnostic view of in an area in an Aryan view of, of of Christianity in general. So we should take what they say with a grain of salt, but also at the same time look uh, like hey, like I know that you you have this experience, and it's not that we shouldn't accept it as true, but validate their experience and, and say, yes, like, you know, you do have this experience, but your experience doesn't line up with what's in the scriptures and it doesn't line up with reality. So don't be afraid to walk them through these things. And especially like that and, 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 and the, the Mormons, I have some really good friends that are Mormon and I, I miss talking with them about these things. So now let let's jump into let's jump in, into a text. So 1 Corinthians 15. So it's not a gospel account, but it's still a primary source. The reason that it's a primary source is because of how Paul wrote it and because what Paul wrote can be traced back to the Jerusalem apostles. And so this is what's called a creed, and this is a very early church creed, probably within the first few months of the resurrection. And this, this, what Paul, what Paul writes, and how he writes it is in, indicates that very thing that it was passed down to him. And we're we're clued into that because of because of him saying what I received. And that, that indicates a passing down of some sort of oral tradition. And mind you, back then, the, or a lot of times, oral tradition is just how things go. Because not everybody knew how to read and write. It's not like... Excuse me. It's not like what we have today. What we have today is a system that teaches everybody from a young age how to read and write so that they can function in society. But we need to remember that back in the first century Palestine, we or they did not need to be able to learn or to be able to read and write in order to be functioning in society. You didn't need to be able to read or write 
to be a carpenter or a potter or a basket maker. You just didn't need that. I mean, even if you were a soldier, you you didn't need to know that. The only people that needed to know that were nobility and the religious officials. So that's not saying that many people didn't know how to read and write. A lot of them did, but it was a very, very basic enough to, to, to get them by. So, again, oral tradition is how a lot of this stuff has just been passed on. And it was made into very, very memorizable things. So, this, it, it's just, it was just easy to memorize. It was like, so if you look at 1 Corinthians, and it's like, and, or that he was buried, and, and or, and it depends on your translation. So, but if you look at it, you're going to see a repetition that is indicating that it's to be memorized. So the other thing is, when Paul talks about this, is that the resurrection is absolutely essential to the faith. It's, it's foundational for the faith that we believe. So if we are going to be Christians, then we need to recognize that the church that we belong to is, is, is a is 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 a, a a faith that is based on the resurrection not not on just mere mere conjecture so let me pull it up real quick and i just want to kind of walk through this type these things with you so we're going to i'm going to pull up 1 Corinthians 15 real quick and we're we're going to walk through certain parts of it now I I like to use the the NASB or the New American Standard Bible and um that is literally just because I like the way it's worded and it's good for and it's good for just for study purposes but if I'm going to read it and just take in take in the truth I mean I still use that that version, but I also like the the CSB and and the the ESV. So the Christian Standard Bible or, or the the English Standard Version. So. The. So the this this foundational, this foundational uh, aspect. Of 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 the resurrection is is found in verse fourteen where he says, "If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain." And again, this is coming from the New American Standard Bible. So, right there, we're seeing Paul, who is widely considered the best evangelizer, next to Jesus. Like, there's Jesus, and then there's Paul in terms of the amount that's been accomplished. Um, in terms of 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 proclaiming the gospel and stuff like that, so then then he goes in and he says that the the resurrection of Jesus also implies our resurrection. So basically, what what he's saying is that we're because Jesus resurrected from from the dead like bodily, that we will also be bodily resurrected in the end times. We're getting a little 
and we're diving a little bit into the eschatology of Jesus, and it's, it's a lot of fun, but we're not dwelling on that right now. Eschatology is a lot of, a lot of prophecy and a lot of, a, a lot of nuanced things, and, and right now we're not worried too much about that. So, basically, the reason why we get this whole bodily resurrection is because of two words that we find in 1 Corinthians 15. So, in 1 Corinthians 15, we get, and we, and we see in the Greek this word soma, which uh, denotes a physical body. And that is what will be resurrected. So, this, this, this like spiritual, the spiritual body, this, this perishable body is, in other words, sown as a natural body from verse 44, sown, it is sown as a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. So, this natural, this natural body, it's like, there's this body that's composed of carbon and a whole bunch of other things and then the then it is resurrected and made pure and holy so then it can be in the presence of God and then we also see this this word sarks now sarks is almost universally used as a as the flesh and the carnal man which is basically the source of all of the evil that we experience in terms of in terms of uh, human evil. So we're, let's think about like the Holocaust. Like that is the sarks of Hitler coming out, not not the soma. The soma is just his physical body and all of its components. But then the sarks is the that fleshly component where Hitler was giving into his into his flesh where he had a, a, a precon, preconceived notion that the, the Jews were evil. So Paul's use of, the, of, of these two words were just, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's really, there's no question about it. If we're going to look, if we're going to compare it with the Jehovah's Witnesses um, theology of it being a spiritual body and not an actual physical body, and we're there's a lot of other things that that go into this, and we're well. I'll bring the the Jehovah's Witnesses up continually because it just works. So with with the Jehovah's Witnesses, there's a there's no question about it that they are wrong, just based on these these two words, and that it's two words out of an entire chapter, and there's fifty some verses in there's fifty eight verses in chapter 15 and it, this entire chapter is about the resurrection so in an entire chapter of the resurrection two words completely discount and discredit the Jehovah's Witnesses the Jehovah's Witness position so Paul's use of the Greek as did it just has this strong implication that he seriously means a bodily resurrection, but not a carnal resurrection. Now remember, and I'm going, I, I want to impress this as hard as I can. Carnal man is the man that wants to do evil, 
That is our sinful nature. Where the soma, the physical man, the 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 actual physical body that we that we have is going to be resurrected. Now, let's look at let's let's think a little bit about you know what and com- combine and systematize a little bit what the what the first what first Corinthians and the the resurrection accounts in the gospels talk about. So we know that Paul is also very clearly describing a a physical resurrection that we see come uh is we also see the evidence of that in 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 the the gospel accounts where we see Thomas who who came in and and touched touched his hands and felt felt his side there's no reason for for us to believe that it it was spiritual just based upon that but then also we go we 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 learn that the 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 resurrection body the resurrection of Jesus was also or the the person of Jesus as he was after he was resurrected was eating with the disciples that doesn't happen if you are a spirit body reminds me of of Casper and the movie the movie Casper where he uh where Casper starts and his uncles they just start eating a bunch of things and it just goes straight through him like you could have easily just picked up whatever they were eating and put it in your mouth and it would have been totally fine it might have tasted funny because it went through all that ectoplasm but nevertheless eating is not something that a spiritual body does they don't need physical sustenance where if it's a physical and bodily resurrection then we can we can automatically assume that he's going to need some sort of sustenance just to to keep him keep him going the the physical body is going to need nourishment that's just the nature of physical bodies and he also wanted and I just getting a little theological here and a little bit into the application, it's also showing us that Jesus cares about the personal relationship there. You know, just like we are sharing a drink together, he also shared a drink together with his with his disciples. He shared a meal with his disciples. There's something there that communicates this personal aspect of Jesus, and that's something that I don't think we can leave out. So... When we look at the Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe this. What they believe is that the the resurrection body was a spiritual body, and it was just made to appear that he rose from the dead bodily. So basically, whenever Thomas, we'll pick on Thomas again. He gets picked on a lot, and no reason to not continue. <laughs> so... um if we're if we're going to talk about Thomas here the 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 reason then that it it becomes very apparent if we have a a the the mere appearance of a physical body that Jesus bring there assumes while he's with Thomas is it it leaves this this notion of of deception and that contradicts the attributes of God 
God can't be deceptive if he is all good. That God can't be deceptive if he is truth. Because deception goes against truth. So that kind of puts them, the Jehovah's Witnesses, a, a hair closer to, to the, the Muslims who think that they're, they don't really have any, any real assurance for their salvation because they don't know what Allah's going to going to do with them based on a cumulative case for their life. And even then, Allah could just be like, hey, I don't want you here. You can, I'm casting you out. Sorry. I just, I just don't like you. Not, not for, just for no, no apparent reason. That, that does not sit well with me. This, this deceiver, this deceiving type of thing where you're, you, you expect something because of everything that you've done. Now remember, this is something that they have done. It's all based on works. It's based on what they've done. Not what is, not what is certain. So as a, as an as an Orthodox Christian, as a as a as an evangelical evangelical Christian, it is totally totally possible for me to be certain about about my my eternal my eternal situation. If I base everything, and I mean everything, in my life, that on the Trinity and the resurrection. If I base everything off of that, I can be fairly certain that I I can have certainty of being able to be with God for eternity. So there's a little bit about the about the Jehovah's Witnesses and you know what what else then? I mean, whenever we think about the the resurrection the first thing that we think about is is the brutal torture that 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 Jesus went through and i only want to get into the garden today the garden is so the garden of gethsemane the garden is is the, the place where it basically all started at least the passion narrative so in the garden we see that that Jesus is 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 extremely stressed and this is found in Matthew 26, Mark 14 and Luke 22. And in these accounts, every one of them makes sure to note that Jesus was extremely stressed. There was no way for him to for him to uh uh not be stressed. I mean, if you were listening to the oneness theology, we talked about how there was this this communication between between the uh, the father and the son there, and I mean there's there's an, a certain level of stress that goes along with fighting with your father, and Jesus exemplifies this very well, and it's taken to the extreme because he knows what's going to happen. So what we see there is Jesus is distressed; he's praying with his with his his. With his, and talking with his father, but then he's also asking his his disciples to watch over to make sure nothing happens and to make sure that he's secluded. He doesn't want the the crowd to follow him there. He wants some alone time with his father. And if you notice, 
this is that con- that contextual piece coming into it. If you notice, every time that Jesus performs a miracle, he goes off, performs a large miracle, that is. He goes off and, and spends time with his father. Because after all that, ex- that spiritual exertion, he needs to be refueled. And that's 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 the type of thing that he's doing he's he's getting fueled up for what's going to happen so he's alone he's praying with the father and praying to the father and disciples are supposed to be watching now jesus is distressed and distraught i'm i'm sure anger was in there as well for knowing what was going on and knowing what was going to happen. So with that, with that stress, there's, there's, he, the, the Bible says that he was sweating droplets of blood. And the first question that we should ask, not just as, 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 as Christians, but as people who, who live in the 21st century and have, adequate biological and scientific capabilities to be able to go research some things. So we could easily just type into Google anymore and just say, what is the condition or is there a condition, a medical condition that involves sweating blood? And if you type that in, you're going to get a, 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 a condition called hematohydrosis and hematohydrosis basically just means sweating blood and what what happens here is that extreme emotional and mental stress and just excessive exertion of, of mental and emotional abilities which is usually happens through stress it causes the blood vessels surrounding causes the blood vessels surrounding the the sweat glands to burst and then the 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 blood the blood mixes with the sweat and then it is is exerted so before we actually go into a little bit more the physiology of of that let's take a look at stress because that's a really big key component into really big key component into hematohydrosis. So with stress, I'm not sure how stressed you have ever gotten, but I've experienced a lot of emotional stress going through my divorce. And I remember at times that I had this tense this my I could feel my heartbeat because I was I was just so amped up. And this this acute stress could cause an increase in, in the the blood pressure and then what happens then because your 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 blood pressure increases then you are you your 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 blood vessels need to dilate which means to get bigger so that you can push more blood through and get to the muscles and to fuel the muscles and the reason for that is because because the 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 muscles are using ATP, which is their fuel to to cause uh, a muscle contraction. 
that's what they use to to contract the muscle. Now, in order for them to be refueled and to get more ATP to use, blood needs to be pushed through to the muscles. So that's why your blood vessels dilate and the and the the increase in in blood pressure happens is because you need more fuel because your muscles are automatically tense. It's a it's an autonomic nervous system or an ANS or a central nervous system, sorry, central nervous system response or SNS uh, somatic nervous system response that happens when you are stressed. And basically this the somatic nervous system is is triggered due to a fight or flight response. And whenever you are stressed, more than likely you are in this flight or fight uh, kind of limbo where if somebody crosses you the wrong way, you might just deck them because you're just that stressed or you might snap at them. I mean, there's been times where I've snapped at my wife because I, just because I've been stressed and who knows why I did it for that reason and who knows what she said but because I'm stressed I just kind of snap at her and so that's that's what's going on within your body and then you're within with within your nervous system but then this prolonged tension in your muscles so if you if you are stressed for an extremely long period of time or if your stress is so high that this muscle tension this muscle tension continues to persist, then that can cause other other medical conditions. And then that brings us to hematohydrosis, where this stress in the muscles, there's so much heat being produced because you're burning ATP. You're literally, it's like a fire where there's heat coming off of your muscles and your muscle fibers after burning ATP. So your muscles and your body needs to cool down. That's why after after running or doing any sort of exercise you have a you have like a hot face or your muscles feel hot that that's why is because your body is your body needs to cool down and that's what sweating does for you it releases it releases the 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 heat via evaporation so imagine that you're so stressed that the blood vessels dilate or the capillaries dilate that surround your sweat glands, that they burst because of the, the the blood pressure is so high, and it mixes with the blood, or it mixes with the sweat, and then it comes out. It 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 is expelled through through the sweat. There's no other place for it to go, and that's your body's natural reaction, so that you don't start bleeding internally. So. That's literally what's going on with the, the 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 sweating droplets of blood. He was under so much duress and stress that he his capillaries burst and he started sweating blood. I mean, imagine imagine that weight. Imagine knowing exactly what's going to happen that you were going to be scourged, mocked, and nailed to a cross. And keep in mind that the the the, the Romans did all of this they created the crucifixion and the scourging to be the most horrendous and painful process to date and even now it is the most painful process the most painful torture to withstand 
and the intention wasn't that you would be able to withstand it at all. You would die. They would leave you up there to die. So before Jesus le even left the garden, he had already experienced some sort of blood loss. Now, when when that was in the in the in the actual timeline of things, I'm not exactly sure. But even then, that's still a blood loss, and even though it's minor, we can count that as some sort of blood loss into this whole cum cumulative case. But at the same time, we also need to understand that stress takes a big, major toll on our body. There's studies out there that say that stress, or the the increase in stress that we that we experience, is only detrimental to our to our physical state, which basically means the more the more stressed that we are, the more minutes that we take off our life. So that's one of the reasons why I don't get super stressed and worked up over a lot of things. It's just not worth it. I'd much rather live a longer life than than have a shorter life where I I feel crappy. So there's really no no real reason to speculate how long this hematoidrosis was going on. All we need to know is that it happened and that he was extremely stressed. So we're we're gonna pause there before we move into the scourging and and the trial and and the mocking of Jesus. And let's let's sit down and think about about some some of the application of this up to this point. So not only have we looked at the the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and there's there's a lot of hope just right there that. You know, as we are to be imitators of Christ, that not just means in our behavior, but it also extends into what comes up, what comes to us, and what we have in store after death. That we will be able to be there with Jesus, with God, in eternal, in, in eternity, and we're going to be feasting with them, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, as a whole kingdom and we'll be able to use all of our gifts that we've been able to that we've been able to to you or to 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 grow and 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 cultivate as 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 good stewards so we we see that and then that just gives us so much hope to to then launch into a good god honoring life and then what what do we what do we do with this biological stuff that's going on in Jesus is it just gives us another another way to relate with him i mean he he went through that much stress for me if he went through that much stress for me how much more stress or how much stress do i need to endure for my brother and sister or my wife or my coworker that I don't even like. Does that mean take the fall for them? Not necessarily. Does that mean deal with them and try to, to love on them? Yeah, it does. The ultimate act of love is to lay one's life down for his brother. So that's what we should be taking out of this, this passion, this portion of the passion narrative is the stress that we experience in in wrestling with God and wrestling with the decision to 
to love on somebody and to be that ultimate sort that ultimate love and and to show that ultimate love it's going to take a toll on you but remember bird that bird's eye view it's just a blip it's just a blip on the screen so the coronavirus it's a it's a mere blip on the screen of the of the entirety of the life of the universe god knows the beginning he knows the end and this is a microscopic point on that timeline so guys no it's it's been an absolute pleasure to to be able to do this with you um and thank you thank you for tuning in and next this next pint we are going to to dive into the the scourging and and the and the crucifixion and what's going on there biologically we're going to tackle the biology first and then we're going to move into some of the historical the historical pieces of what's going on surrounding the resurrection it's been a pleasure to to read and research this topic so that we can talk about this and and just grow together so remember as we go from here to stay thirsty for god's word and to be responsible in its use and in practice in our lives so that we can be better disciples and more effective in sharing our faith with the world around us.